Well, today we continue our way through the book of Ephesians and come to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll just be looking at the first three verses today. This is on page 1038 in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I will tell you at the outset, if you don't know Ephesians very well, it's a hard text. Not hard to preach, I don't think, um, though, I mean, in as much as every passage of Scripture is difficult to preach. But, I mean, th- there, there have been texts, you know, that pa- those, some of those texts in Daniel were, were a little challenging. But th- this one's pretty much right there on the surface, uh, but maybe hard to hear. And uh, as I said last Sunday in, in Sunday school, I, I put myself in the hearing as well. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I have to hear this too, you know. Um, but it's, it's hard to hear. This is, this is uh, dark in one sense. Um, I remember, I think, I, I don't know if I shared this years ago, but uh, we had friends uh, lived in, in Warwick at the time. And uh, after we would win sports games, I was coaching softball at the time. And uh, uh, one of the girls who was on my team, her parents, after we would win a championship, would have us over to the house for dinner. And uh, the team, you know, and it was a nice time of just uh, you know, letting your hair down after a very stressful game. And uh, so anyway, I remember going in their house and we'd go over there every, every uh, June. And I remember in their house, they had this amazing, beautiful picture. It was a photograph taken of their farm. They had a farm there in Warwick at the time. And it was just the most beautiful picture. I've since tried to get it of my own house many times and I can't quite get it uh, because it requires just the right scenario. And you can imagine it maybe in your head and maybe you, I'm sure you've seen this somewhere. It is, it was a very dark thunderstorm had just rolled through. The picture was facing east, which made it doable because the sun was in the west. It was late in the day and a very heavy thunderstorm had just rolled through. And so the sun is behind the photographer and now the clouds have broken. So the thunderstorm is no longer blocking the sun. The sun is shining brightly behind the photographer and it's shining on their beautiful red barn you know, their dairy bar. And the, but the thunders, the, the thunderstorm clouds are still there behind the barn. So looking at the barn, it's unbelievably dark, but because the sun is behind the photographer, the sun is hitting the barn and it's just bright as can be, completely illuminated. Um, now every day the sun is illuminating things and it doesn't pop like that. And the reason it doesn't pop like that is because you don't have, always have that setting where you have the bright sun and the very dark. And it was dark. It was a hard charcoal gray. You could tell it must have been a doozy of a storm that had just rolled through. But that dark storm background is what made the brightness of the barn And that is the kind of text we are in today. And that's the kind of experience that we are in for this week and next week. Paul, in chapter 2, what he's doing for us right now is painting a picture of that unbelievable, dark, stormy sky. And if that was the whole story, we would say, this this is depressing. But it's not all that there is. You'll see, maybe the best word in the whole book begins our text next week, but, but. So that means that whatever we're going to say today is not the end of the story, right? It's dark, but, and then he's going to direct us in that context to the brightness of the focus of the picture, the barn. In this case, it will be the grace of God. 
but for you to know the grace of God, for you to delight in the beauty of that barn, you need that backdrop that makes it pop. And that is what we get today. And so I encourage you to lean in. Lean in. Don't be worn out by the strength of the language that we're going to hear today, you know, but lean into it. Embrace it. Dwell in it. Let it unsettle you. Let it, like we've already said, be a mirror to you to see yourself. Let it be a, a, a time to contemplate the backdrop in which the grace of God will be precious to you. John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. We all know that hymn. But I can assure you that grace will never seem that amazing unless you dwell in the darkness of our own sin, unless we contemplate it, unless you come to grips with who you are, deep in your soul. And there are things in there you don't want me to see. I know that. But even more scary, there are things in there you don't want to see. There are things in your heart that you would rather just forget. There are thoughts you've had you do not want to admit. There are temptations you have had that you'd rather just put behind you. And this text kind of dredges it up. This text forces us to reckon with those things. And I believe, and I want to challenge you to embrace that. Dig in. Rip the lid off. Admit it. That should be what we're doing every Sunday as we confess our sins, is open it up. Take the scab off that thing. Because only then will we be able to hear the word, but God, and rejoice. If not, if, if we don't do this, if we just think we're pretty decent people, why wouldn't God love me? I'm so lovable, Right? Again, if we judge ourselves by one another and think, you know what, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy. And I know we don't think we do that, but I'm telling you right now, you do do that. Okay? And if that's all we do, then I tell you right now, your faith will be tepid, lukewarm. You will love God the way you love other simple things. It's, it's like, yes, I do, but you know, it will never, it will not, it will not control your life. It will not light a fire in your soul. If we want that, and I believe that's the kind of faith the Bible calls us to, then we have to deal with this. So let's dig in. Paul has just prayed, you'll remember last week, Paul has prayed in chapter one that God would illumine or open the eyes of their hearts. Right? We, we looked at that image. It's an unusual image. He doesn't say the eyes of your mind, but the eyes of your heart, of your gut, of your affections, that you might know something, that you might know what is the hope of your calling. Okay, so Paul wants us, he, he knows that our eyes tend to be glazed over, that our eyes tend to be lowered down off the future hope of our calling, of what God has created us for and what he's moving us toward. Our eyes tend to be lowered to the problems, the very real, but I can assure you in the grand scheme of things, minimal problems of this age. And Paul says, I, I, I'm just praying that your eyes, the eyes of your affections, of what you long for, of what drives you and motivates you, that that be open so that you can see and know what is the hope to which you're moving, the hope of your calling, the glorious inheritance of the saints, and also the power 
that is in Christ working for you. I want you to know that. Okay, so it's right on the heels of that that he then says this, and I'm going to give you verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and then we'll dive in. And you, because he just said, uh, Christ who is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. So the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then next week, but God. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Paul speaking about the church is glorious, but if you want to know the glories of the church and if you want to know the power of God and you want to know the beauties of our inheritance and if you want to know uh, the inheritance of God, the church, and you want to know the uh, the hope to which you were called, then here's what you got to reckon with first. You were dead in your sins and trespasses and he made you alive. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. So Paul jumps right out of the gate here with the condition that we all have to confess, that by nature, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Spiritually dead. The way Paul said it in the text that Mark read today, our our, uh, New Testament passage in Romans 3, is there is none righteous, no, not one. And he does not leave it there. He doubles down. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Their throats are open great. And then he just, he, he, he rips down from the, from the Psalms, just like he just kind of goes through the body using it and, 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 uh, in this illustrative way to say every part of our being is toxic. This is a hard thing to say. People find this offensive, frankly. Right? that we would have this view of man. We like to think that man is basically good. Sure, he screws up every now and then. Sure, you get a, 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 a kook like Hitler who, who, who kills six million Jews, but he's an outlier. Ah, sure, there are people that fly planes into buildings. We know that, but they're outliers. Sure, there are people who do this. They're out. We like to think that man is basically good, and then there's a few kooks. Well, this is just not biblical. That's just not what, that's not what Paul says. It's not what the scriptures say. Paul says we all were dead in our sins and trespasses. There is none among us who has any claim to righteousness. Now again, compared to me, you do. Like compared to me, you might be very righteous. On the scale of humanity, you might say, well, I'm better than Adolf Hitler. Okay. Maybe I'll grant it, okay? Even though, you know, had fortune been different, you know, we always say the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. We don't really believe it, but we say it when we're trying not to be judgmental. But, but I think we must confess that we all have, you know, you know uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line between good and evil is a line that runs through every human heart. It's like in some, you know, Solzhenitsyn, who, by the way, is being kicked, you know, he, he was exiled, put in Siberia twice, 
battled cancer in Siberia, and then is exiled from his country on, uh, 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 in the Soviet Union after the war. And Solzhenitsyn, who would have every reason to be bitter against the communists you know, there in, in uh, Moscow, Solzhenitsyn says, yeah, the line between good and evil is a line that runs through every human heart. Like, I, I, sure, I can be bitter at them, but I, that, that, it's not like the line is, oh, the communist and then us. That line runs right through me. I have to deal with that sin within my own life. And so it is for us. Again, compared to me, okay, maybe you're better. You might very well be. But the problem is you're not going to stand before me in judgment one day. When you stand before God, he's not going to say, all right, now Bill, come out, come out here. All right, Todd, yeah, you do look good compared to Bill. All right, you're, that's not how it works. On that day, you will be judged according to the very holiness of God. As he says to Peter, be holy as I am holy. That is the standard by which you will be judged. And I'm going to guarantee you, compared to that holiness, you and Hitler look identical. <laughs> you look identical compared to that degree of righteousness and perfection. So again, how can Paul say it more strongly? I don't know. Not, man, we were all pretty bad. Not all, we were all diseased with sin. We were talking about this the other day and Billy Graham, the way Billy Graham would talk about these things. By the way, a wonderful man of God, used by God, wonderful preacher, right? Not going to say a lot negative about Billy Graham, but he was wrong on this one because he would use the language of our being diseased and we have to reach out to God. And it was like, I remember R.C. Sproul just saying, no, it's, it's, it's much worse than that. It's not that you're diseased, you're dead. You are dead in sin and trespasses. It can't be stated worse than that. You have no spiritual life in you. You don't need God for help. It's not, well, God helps those who help themselves. It's not, you know, you make a step toward God and God makes a step toward you. Dead men don't step. So Paul is saying it as strong as he can. God made us alive. This is why grace is amazing, because all that you have, you owe to him. For one, because he literally made you alive physically. You have no life in yourself. You had zero control over your own existence. Your very existence here, you owe completely to your creator. Completely. I mean, every second of your day, you, you should be praising him and glorifying him. You were completely out of control. You can't even maintain your own existence right now. But then spiritually speaking, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and he made you alive. Grace is amazing if we take time to recognize that from which we were saved and that from which we came. So Paul first recognizes the condition. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, completely identified with your sins and trespasses. Now, Paul will elaborate on this. And this is what we get in verses 2 and 3. Because Paul takes this death in sin and breaks it down to the spiritual enemies or the spiritual forces, if you will, that, that we have to face and to which we've surrendered on every front. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and he does it with world 
devil and flesh, you know, but the reformers, the reformers, when they talked about the enemies to our faith, they talked in these threefold terms, right? That when we live our Christian lives, what we, what we need to put on the armor of God for and do battle with is the world. We'll explain what that means in a second. The flesh, my own sinful nature, right? I got plenty of sinfulness in me and then also the devil. And so Paul takes these up now in order. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in once in which you once walked. So here dead men walking. Okay. You're dead men and women, you were, who walked according to the course of this world. Now by world here, he he doesn't mean the earth. He means a spirit of the age. He means a, a sense of worldliness, right? The word world gets used in the Bible multiple ways. Sometimes it does mean the earth, right? The world. He's got the whole world in his hands kind of thing. Sometimes it means people, you know? And other times it means a spirit of the age, worldliness. That spirit of enmity against God, the spirit of, of uh, an adversarial relationship toward God. That is the world that Paul is talking about when he says in Romans 12, do not be conformed, take the shape of, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. He doesn't mean don't have human bodies, don't do cultural things. He means don't live like non-believers live. Don't follow that pattern of disobedience. Don't walk according to the same principles and values of those who have no love for God. But you must be transformed, he says, in the renewing of your mind. That, that's the world. You heard uh, Mark reference it uh, in, in his prayer this morning when John says uh, that we are not to love the world, nor the things of the world. And what he means by that is not rocks and trees and, and baseball games and those kinds of things. He says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. And what he means by those is the pride of life, uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's like, it's, it's not the stuff that's the problem. It's the spirit that's the problem. It's the lust by which we see the good gifts of God and make idols out of them, by which we use them simply to gratify our sinful desires. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, must have, must have, must have, and the pride of life, it's mine. That is the world that's how the world thinks. That's worldliness. And Paul looks at the Ephesians and he looks at us all and says, yeah, that was the pattern you walked in. We all do. It's, in some sense, it's what we inherit from our father Adam. We're all born this way. We're all born in a condition in which we tend to go that way. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We walked according to the course of the world. And therefore, Paul is, ultimately we know, this is, this is that out of which you were saved. So that now Paul can say to the Romans, do not be conformed to that way. But that is the way that we all at one time walked. So the world had overcome us. So verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And then secondly, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So here we have the devil. 
And we talked about this in Daniel. This is another uncomfortable reality. We would like, you know, we, we at, in some sense, we tend to be just raw materialists. Thinking about, you know, we just think whatever we see is what is. You know? And this was a, the, one of the lies of the Enlightenment. Right? If, I, if I can't see it, if I can't experience it with my senses, then you know what? It doesn't exist. But that's a, that's a very dangerous lie. For one, we're Christians, so we believe God, whom I don't see, nonetheless exists, but so do spiritual powers. I mean, just, just you, you can look around and you can see the delusion of an age. That the explanations for such self-destructive delusions are not explicable by mere material things. And in the book of Daniel, you'll remember, it was kind of uncomfortable. It was just one of those tough passages to preach on. But you'll remember where, you know, the, the angel shows up and says, well, I was, I was warring against the, 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 the prince of Persia. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, Ezekiel 37 is a vision. Daniel was not a vision. An angel showed up to him and starts saying, you know, and you're just like, wait, what's going on? Wait, there's a, there's a spiritual power over Persia? And you were engaged. Like, what is going on there? This is just so far from our mindset. But you have enemies. Not only is the world luring you into a way of living and walking that is disobedient to God, not only is the world, not only within the world is there a certain social pressure that wants to push you to conform in disobedience to God. And by, by that pressure, it's, just a, it's, it's hard to explain what it is. It's just there. I call it ruts. You know, like I have, I slide into ruts in my life. Just ways of doing things. And many of those ruts are just American ruts. I'm an American for crying out loud. And I'm a New Yorker. And we have our own ruts, just ways that Americans and New Yorkers do things. And I have to be careful of those, because that many of those, not all those are evil or wicked, of course. But nonetheless, there's stuff that you just do because you do it. It's like we've talked about before, fish who swim in water and wouldn't know what water is. Why would they know what water is? It's just, I don't know, it just is. You can't, you can't sense it anymore because it's the world you live in. And as Americans and as New Yorkers or whatever you are, we live in a, in a, in a culture and there are ruts that we slide into. And it's the power of the world that if we're not careful, you just don't detect. And next thing you know, you're just living according to the values. You know, the American dream becomes the most important thing to you and having the right house and having the right job and having good health insurance and having, you know, this and security and that and, you know, make sure my medical insurance, you know, it's like these things become the most important things. And it's like, I, I, that's, that's worldly. Not that they're unimportant. It's just worldly. It's like you've got your eyes lowered way down. Those are important. You deal with them, and you, we, we're, but we're looking way beyond that. You know, the son of, son of man had nowhere to lay his head. You know, the Apostle Paul's roaming around just preaching the gospel. Like these, were, these things didn't matter to him. But wow, they matter to us. They're really important. These are, I got to get that stuff settled, and then I can think about how to love others. And we have to be careful, right? That's how the world does its thing. So we get that to deal with. But on the other hand, you've got spiritual powers that want to undo you. They want to undo you. When you are faced with temptation, it wants to undo you. It will destroy you. It's like offering you sweet-tasting poison. Right? It's not just another beautiful, good thing that you, know, you probably shouldn't have. No, it will kill you. 
Sin does this, and these spiritual powers want to undo you. It's not that those spooky things in the closet that I got to worry about. It's temptations that come to me from outside. Now, again, we're going to get to the flesh. That's a huge problem. But there are powers that seek to undo you. I'm, I'm going through the book of Revelation with uh, my, my, my 12th graders on Friday. So we do apologetics, but then on Friday we... We cover the book of Revelation because it, it is a, it's an unveiling of the world in which they need to live. They're going to go out into this world. At least that's how I think you read the book of Revelation. It's not about the end times, per se. It's the unveiling of the world in which John's churches were living. And we just went through uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. I told him it gets really rough now. And in chapter 12, Satan, after the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan is kicked out of heaven. And I, I don't know what that actually looked like, but what I do know is going on there is because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan no longer has a charge. Remember the word Satan means accuser. There, there's no accusation that can be leveled at you anymore because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because his blood and righteousness covers me, there's literally that the prosecutor has no argument anymore. The debt is paid. It's gone. Okay, so... It's pictured as him being thrown out of heaven. Okay, but then it says, therefore he comes to make war with the church. <laughs> so fine, he has no accusation, but you know what he seeks to do is undo you, destroy you. He seeks to make war. And he, in, in Revelation, he says, woe to you inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come to you knowing his days are short. Peter says he's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. If nothing else, this calls for prayer, brothers and sisters. Like you, you can't live like materialists. You, you can't just think, well, I'm going through my days and it's just pure material reality. There is that, but we live in a world where there are principalities and powers at work. And they want to undo you. And prior to our conversion, prior to us being in Christ, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Completely compliant. No resistance to the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So we got the world with its subtle pressures. We got the, 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 the spiritual powers that seek to undo us. And then finally, in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Yeah, sure, you got spiritual powers, you got worldly powers, but the only power they have really is because you, in the lusts of your flesh, are weak, and I are weak. <laughs> we conduct ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Now, by flesh here, again, he's not talking about flesh, i.e. material, like, like body, flesh and bone. Flesh in the Bible, though it can sometimes mean that, but oftentimes when the biblical, the New Testament writers use the word flesh, they're using in contrast to the spirit. They're using flesh as a, an image for our, our carnal nature, our, our bodily existence, but such that's bent away from God. And hence our uh, word of exhortation today from Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are. And then he just has this laundry list of sins that come up. Yeah, that's that right there. That's what the flesh does. And we walked, conducted ourselves according to those desires. We're like animals. 
Athanasius, the great church father, said, this is what sin has done. It has, man, man, he, he argues, is the only creature who walks with his head up. You know, we look around. We, 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 unlike the other animals, beasts, he says, Athanasius says, and this is, in, this is in the fourth century, okay? Athanasius says, beasts walk with their heads down. Animals walk with their heads down. Because they're, all they're, they're consumed with is survival, eating, getting food, protection. But human beings made in the image of God lift their eyes and we contemplate. We look at the stars. We look at the changing leaves. We look in each other's eyes. We contemplate great ideas. Yeah, because we're made in the image of God. We're not beasts. But what sin does is make you beastly. Sin draws your eyes down Back to survival. It's like material things, merely filling my belly, protecting myself. Again, making sure I've got retirement taken care of. I make sure I got good insurance. I make sure I got a car that's running well. I got the right house. I got my heating bill paid. I got, I got to get a job because I got to pay for it. You know, it's like these aren't unimportant things. Survival is important. It's just not the most important. And I know that because you're going to die. So you can't ultimately sustain it. So it can't be the most important thing. But that's what happens when we walk according to the flesh. You'll know you're walking according to the flesh because you got your head down. You're never contemplating. You're not praising. You're not thanking. Right? Animals don't thank. But we thank God. If our eyes are up, you know, we're not walking according to the flesh. But by nature, that's who we are. We walk according to the flesh. Head down, like Paul said in the text we looked at last week in Philippians 3, I tell you this with great grief and sorrow of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and whose end is destruction. And Paul is saying this because he was one of them. It's what we all are. Here he's saying to the Ephesians, we are those whose end is destruction because we're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We're walking according to the flesh. We're walking in conformity with a world, with the world that is at enmity with God. And then he cinches it all up just with that last punch before next week's but God. And we were by nature. If you want to know what we were, the nature of something is what it is. Whatever quality makes a cup a cup. That's We call this a cup because its nature is cupness. Okay, that's the quality of cup. And that's how you know it's something. The nature of something is what it is in its essence. And he says, and we, by nature, we were by nature, the very essence of who we were, were children of wrath. So here's, here's who we were. We were dead in our sins. What did that death look like? That death looked like sort of beastly desire to satisfy our fleshly urges. Giving in, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, right? No resistance to the temptations. Walking in conformity with a world that's at enmity with God. That's what death looks like. And as such, we were by nature children of wrath. Wrath is, means anger. It is the righteous anger of God. It is the thing people don't like to talk about with God. In fact, there are many Christians who don't even like 
mentioning the wrath of God because it sounds too puritanical. It sounds too medieval. Jonathan Edwards, who writes his famous sermon, probably some of you read it in uh, high school. I can tell you they, they don't really read this in high school anymore, except at Chapel Field. We read, we read it, of course. But Jonathan Edwards wrote, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I challenge you to go read that sermon. It's an uncomfortable sermon to read because you think, my goodness, they used to preach sermons like this? <laughs> like, who could handle a sermon? Like, go read it. It is repetitive and it is rough. And it was the sermon that sparked the, uh, um, yeah, the Great Awakening in the 18th century in, in New England. And it was a sermon about how God is holding you like a spider over a fire. And at some point, the flames are going to singe that little, that little thread, and you're going to fall into the fire. So repent. That's what the sermon was about. Like, like Jonathan Edwards took it seriously. Like, I mean, we just read Ezekiel 37. That's at the end of that book. The whole book is about the wrath of God. Like, Israel, you have disobeyed, and now you are going off into exile into Babylon. And it was rough. It was really rough. The Babylonians just came in and destroyed them, destroyed their temple, dragged them out in enslavement. This is a, this is a tiny picture of the judgment that is to come. You read Revelation and it talks about the trumpets, natural disasters and calamities and the fall of kingdoms and all these kinds of things. And they are the mere trumpet warnings of a coming judgment. Read the end of Revelation in Revelation 19 when the Lord comes with a sword out of his mouth with which he slays his enemies and the blood comes up to the horse's bridles for a thousand square miles. It's rough to read. We cannot flinch at a picture of the wrath of God. Our God is a holy God and he will not be trifled with. But he gives time. His mercy is here. You know, the author of Hebrews says, while it is still called today, while you are standing on your two feet and can still say the word today, that means there is time to repent. But to do that, you must hear this hard truth. To hear this, we must reckon with who we are. We must confess the fact that these things are true of us, and we must acknowledge that our God is a holy God. And he is a God who hates sin. He is a righteous, good, loving God who will not tolerate sin, for sin is destructive. And he will deal with it. Now this forms, this reality, in fact, it's these two things. Right? Let's, think of them like, uh, let's think of them like hot and, you know, just telling Tommy yesterday, I was out working, we were splitting firewood and... and uh, and Tommy was with me, and all of a sudden, man, it just, the wind came through, and the temperature dropped about 10 degrees. It happened very quickly. I don't know what happened here, but up by me, and, and all of a sudden, the rain came. And I was telling Tommy, this is what happens when, you know, warm air and cold air hit, because you could see the line in the, in the sky, the clouds. It was just like a clear line of clouds, like one of those days when the front is really clear, like the, the clouds are just a straight line of, of overcast. And I said, see, see, bud, this is what happens when warm and cold air meet. Okay, so... So if we're thinking back to the picture at the Caparis farm of the, of the thunderstorm, it is the hot and cold air that mix to form these very, very, very dark clouds. And those two things are the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And Paul draws our attention to these two things. 
God is a God of holy wrath. And you are sinners by nature, children of wrath. Not good. Not good. God is a holy fire, and you are gasoline. Not good. But God. And that will bring us next week. But we don't even need next week to do it because we can go back to the first line of this passage. And you, remember, this passage goes real dark, just like those thunderclouds. But even before Paul does that, he gives the little relief. And you, he made alive, who were dead. In order to celebrate that, in order to rejoice in that, I, you need to know, we need to confess honestly who we are. We need not be, you know, put on, you know, dimmers that, that squint our eyes to these things. We must look at head on and know who we are. And we will then celebrate the good news of the gospel. Because again, what does Paul want for us? I want you to see what is the hope of your calling. What is the power of God? What is the glorious inheritance of God in the saints? So you, he made alive who were once dead in your sins and trespasses. So brothers and sisters, don't flinch from it. Look in the mirror and be honest. Rip the lid off. Deal with all the creepy crawlies in there that you wish would just go away or that you could forget. Bring them out. Because with the Lord, there is abundance of forgiveness. The Lord, the Father, sent His Son to die for you and for me. Who were this? It's these people that he loved enough to send his son. The God of wrath is a God of, of infinite love who sends his only begotten son to grant forgiveness for all the ugliness that's in there. All of the disobedience is forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us then, seeing the dark clouds, run to the light and run to him, for in him there is acceptance and there is forgiveness, and we will enjoy that and delight in it. For by grace are you saved, he will say next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation, the hard things that tell us what we'd rather not hear, force us to deal with things we prefer to keep covered up, to say things about ourselves we don't like having said. But Father, we confess today that we are by nature children of wrath, for we by nature have been disobedient to you. We pursue our own desires. We are like the son and the prodigal son that wants all your goodies and then runs away to the far city and wants you to be dead to us. We confess that. We're like beasts. And so the prodigal son ends up with the pigs eating their food. But Father, we thank you that you, in your rich mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And so fill our hearts with joy to know that the grace of which we sing is indeed amazing grace. And your love is inscrutable love. We thank you for the love that you've given to us and the forgiveness in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.